year. Saturday, April 12th at 7 p.m., a benefit for the Berkeley Unitarian Universalists at Cedar and Bonita in Berkeley. For information, call 510-540-1975. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for a cover-to-cover open book. Today's program focuses on an autobiography by journalist artist Peely DeLapp. This fascinating book is the subject that we will be reading selected excerpts from. It's witty, inspiring, and fascinating. I'll be accompanied by her friend and co-worker for many years, poet Lenore Weiss. Welcome, Lenore. Thank you so much, Nina. I'm delighted to be here to celebrate Peely's life. Peely DeLapp, like many women of her generation, paved the way for younger women who sought to achieve their dreams and passions. An active participant of the social events of her time, Peely refused to be a second-class citizen and shoved open the doors that had previously been closed to women artists of her time. Peely DeLapp was born in 1916, and she passed away this last year in 2007. So to begin reading from her autobiography, A Passionate Journey Through Art and the Red Press. San Francisco, 1924. I felt pretty grown up drawing on the tablecloth with my dad in North Beach restaurants when I was eight, emulating his wicked pen. I enjoyed caricaturing unsuspecting diners. Wes's caricatures, some kindly, depending on his subject, most of them cruelly accurate, were a big part of my childhood education. Tiny, dark-haired, and stylish, my mother Dot was usually caricatured as an angry mouse in a chic black hat. More seriously, she posed for his ads as a housewife or elegant shopper, but she was typecast as a foolish, flighty little thing ruled by her emotions. Her talent as a pianist was dismissed by friends and relatives as amusing but unimportant. But she loved jazz and played by ear, emulating such great pianists as Fats Waller. My daughter Nina and I inherited her love of jazz and jazz musicians. Her lifelong political activity, joining protest marches, signing petitions, was put down as just whimsical. Ninety pounds of militant mouse meat, my father teased. 
When I was growing up, I saw my mother as symbolic of all women in relation to their man, walking a step behind him, basking in his achievements. Although my parents never made me feel that my expectations as an artist might be less than a man's, I believed deeply that men were intellectually superior to women. How was I going to amount to anything in a man's world? My, my mother Dot's family was lower middle class Anglo-Saxon with a strong streak of gypsy. Her sister Carol, first married at 16 to an impotent millionaire, was sent off to Tahiti as consolation and accompanied by 21-year-old Dot as chaperone. My aunt's Tahitian friends gave me the name Pili. When I was 14, my father West decided no kid of mine is going to be a commercial artist. I was sent off to the California School of Fine Arts, now the San Francisco Art Institute. I was suddenly surrounded by old people in their 20s and 30s. I set to work drawing the figure with old academic-style teachers. That all changed when Arnold Blanche arrived to teach for a year, bringing a whole new naturalistic approach to drawing the figure and to art. Blanche and his wife Lucille were among the founders of Woodstock, a free-thinking art colony in New York's Catskill Mountains. They were disciples of the old masters and their painting methods. They were also devotees of the French Impressionists and of Picasso. They opened up a whole new world of art for me. The painter's world was still a man's world. I liked Lucille's painting better than Arnold's, but she played a distinctly second fiddle to the maestro. I began to spend evenings making an unusual kind of art with Lucille and Frida Rivera. Later to be better known by her maiden name of Kahlo, Frida and Diego had a studio in the same Montgomery Street building as the Blanches. While Diego worked on his mural in the Stock Exchange building, Frida spent her days drawing and painting portraits of friends. Let's draw the bloodiest thing we can think of, Frida would say in her limited English, setting the mood. Chain smoking and roaring with laughter, we set ourselves themes such as maternity. I drew a voluptuous woman with flowing red hair and five breasts, nursing five babies of different races. I was becoming a fine artist under the influence of Lucille and Frida. The Blanches invited me to spend the summer in Woodstock before going on to the Art Students League in Manhattan the following fall. I was to study with their maestro Kenneth Hayes Miller and with Charles Locke, master of lithography. Keep your knees together, were my father's farewell words. A little late for me. The Blanches lived in the Maverick Road settlement, four miles from Woodstock. Wes and Dot came east in 1931 to see how I fared that summer and to enroll me in the Art Student League in New York. 
the league buoyed my confidence and enthusiasm with its wonderful atmosphere of turpentine, oil, paint, plaster, and ink, and the excitement of learning, seeing painting with new eyes, becoming part of the world of art. I joyously ground down heavy lithographic stones. Charles Locke, head of the League's litho department, would always warn us not to whistle too close to the litho stones. Saliva, like gum Arabic, left white spots. After the image is drawn with grease crayon or ink on the prepared limestone or zinc plate, the surface is chemically treated, dampened, then rolled with an oil-based ink which adheres only to the greasy areas and is repelled by water in the non-greasy areas. Getting it right is a lot more complex than pulling prints from a woodblock or copper. I was just as keen on the Kenneth Hayes Miller life drawing and painting class, learning the interesting Miller method, ways of preparing panels as the old masters did. His attitude toward women artists uh, was typified by his reaction when I brought a lithograph to him for criticism. That's fine, he said, uh, but of course you'll end up having babies. Among Miller's longtime artist friends and admirers who dropped in was Reginald Marsh. He was the great artist of my dreams. I was already voled over by his art. When I visited his studio on 14th Street, it was clear. Here was my kind of painting at last. Lively drawings, lusty figures in earthy situations, burlesque shows, Coney Island, the Bowery, dance marathons, and freak shows. A master autonomist, he had done actual cadaver dissections. Would you like to go sketching with me at the Irving Burlesque? It's a great source, Reg said. Would I? I seized the chance to hang out with this odd, exciting man, going to Coney Island and the Burlesque to sketch the people. I enjoyed sometimes acting like one of his subjects, a busty, sexy girl. There's a dance marathon over in New Jersey. Let's go, he would call. Over we'd go to draw the grotesque and depressing contestants dragging each other around the dance floor for days and weeks to make a few bucks. I was recruited into the Communist Party and found such kindred souls and role models in the John Reed Club, an organization of communist artists and writers, amongst them William Gropper and Raphael Sawyer. One who was not a member, John Sloan, had been a founder of New Masses and taught at the Art Students League. Back in Woodstock for the summer of 1932, I moved into my own cabin behind the Blanches and found a whole new set of friends, communists and disorganized radicals living on the Maverick Road. Having just discovered jazz, I often went to Harlem with my communist friends, including Edward Rolfe, the poet, to listen to music, to sketch, and to dance the Lindy Hop at the Savoy Ballroom. Eddie was a great dancer, 
we had a sweet brother-sister relationship. The following year, he joined the Abraham Lincoln Battalion, part of the International Brigades fighting against Franco in Spain, becoming the unofficial poet laureate of the volunteers. His poem, City of Anguish, about the bombing of Madrid, brought tears to the eyes of Ernest Hemingway. One night, in our arrogance, we took a cab back to the village during a taxi strike, all the while berating the driver for being a scab. Ralph Burton, a disc jockey and jazz buff, introduced me to stride pianist Willie the Lion Smith and the great soprano saxophonist Sidney Bechet at the Log Cabin. friendship with Frida and Diego Rivera and spent much time observing the work on Diego's Rockefeller Center mural. I shopped with Frida at S. Klein's On the Square and joined in their search for the hottest food they could find in Spanish Harlem. It must bring tears to your eyes or it isn't any good, Frida said. I spent a lot of time at the center, washing brushes, posing for one of the figures, and hanging on every word of Diego and Ben Sean, who was one of his assistants. So much for immortality. The great mural was shortly to be destroyed. Nelson R. balked at Diego's inclusion of Lenin in the massive work. Nevertheless, Diego painted it all over again at the Museo Bellas Artes in Mexico City. Diego, a passionate Trotskyite at the time, took a group of us to the Acme Theater to see a Soviet film made before the time when images of Trotsky were zapped out. On Diego's cue, we rose as one to applaud wildly when Trotsky appeared on the scene. Ah, it rankled with New Mass's editor, Joe Freeman, that Rivera was having such a huge influence on artists and left intellectuals in New York. So he was pleased when the Riveras left and David Alvero Siqueiros appeared on the scene. Here was a politically kosher maestro. Siqueiros, temporarily exiled from Mexico for his radical activities, arrived in New York in 1934 from South America with his black, curly hair, Mayan profile, and pale blue eyes. Here was a great artist in my lap, as it were. Night after night, in Child's Restaurant, he hypnotized me and a group of young devotees with his graphic descriptions of revolutionary and collective artwork. He wanted to execute a mural on the outside of the Chrysler building, but only portrait commissions were forthcoming. David once knocked on my door around 3 a.m. to take me for what he considered a marvelous venue for murals, Pennsylvania Station. He magnanimously offered me an alcove of my very own. 
But the great artist as lover program was beginning to be an illusion. I was better off doing my own thing, which continued to be lithographs of ordinary people in everyday settings. Subway, 14th Street, Burlesque, Coney, and frescoes on small panels. San Francisco, 1934, the great longshoremen's general strike. Time to make the annual trek back to the coast and my folks. My parents, deeply involved in the strike, volunteered at the soup kitchen and were being arrested over and over again. I went down to the waterfront office of the Marine Workers Industrial Union on Stewart Street, the communist maritime organization involved in the strike, to volunteer, to picket, paint posters, whatever was needed. I wound up doing caricatures and political cartoons, which would be my major art form for years to come. Sam Telford, head of the Marine Workers Industrial Union and editor of the Fossical Head, was a short, stocky seaman who epitomized my ideal of a seafaring proletarian. Traditional, with a cap pulled down over one eye, he wore a sailor's peacoat and listed as he walked. I became Sam's girlfriend, joined the women's auxiliary picket line on the front and was almost immediately arrested by San Francisco's version of the infamous Los Angeles Red Squad. I cast my lot with Sam when the strike was over and followed him to Portland, Oregon. Sent there by the party, he was to organize the workers on the northwest waterfronts. We mounted soapboxes on Skid Row, exhorting unheeding winos to join the union. I made posters for mass meetings and a full-length life-side portrait of Lenin that made him look as if he'd been squashed by a steam hammer when viewed from a distance in the meeting hall. It had looked okay close up in our small bedroom studio. Before setting out for Portland, I returned to New York to close the loft I lived in on Fifth Avenue near 17th Street and excitedly confided my plans to a friend who said, Just because Sam wears a white cap and walks like a drunken sailor doesn't mean he's the proletarian for you. How right he was. Our limited relationship did not survive. Sam's affection for booze. Happily painting away, I was surprised one day by a visit from Sam, pretty drunk and waving a huge revolver. I was too naive or stupid to realize the danger. I simply told him to stop fooling around with the gun. Off it went, shooting Sam through his own knee. It was a neat shot, missing all bones. Why the hell don't you get married? My father suggested one day in 1935. 
I was 19, and he was tired of supporting me. It was pretty obvious I couldn't support myself with my art. Since I felt I'd fully lived, what was left? You just heard excerpts from Peely Delap's autobiography, A Passionate Journey Through Art and the Red Press, read by myself, Nina Serrano, and my guest poet, Lenore Weiss. Lenore worked with Peely uh, for many years. Uh, can you tell us a little about her? Oh, Peely was a marvelous person and a wonderful teacher. I knew her as a reporter over at the People's World in Berkeley, which was the Communist Party newspaper. And uh, I had come from the East Coast to work there, and she set about training me. And I thought very highly of my writing ability, but she immediately dissuaded me of any notion. She had a red pen that she wasn't afraid to use, and she taught me and many other people the fine points of grammar, because in addition to being a wonderful artist, lithographer, cook, great friend, she was a master editor. And she also was the editor of the People's World Cultural page for many years. Another amazing thing about Pili Delap was that she was a member of the KPFA Local Advisory Board at a very critical time in KPFA history. And that meant that as a woman in her 80s and very close to her 90s, well, perhaps already in her 90s, she was born in 1916, she was commuting for meetings here at KPFA from, from Sonoma. Mm -hmm. That's that's right. This was a dedicated woman. Yes, and I uh, actively heard about all the meetings and how... how uh, important Peely felt it was for her to attend and to add her wisdom to the discussions that were going on about the future of the station. And we're still here. Thank you, Peely Delap, And thank you, Lenore. I wanted to tell listeners that if they would like a copy of this impossible to get book, which is full of illustrations, beautiful lithographs and cartoons by Peely Delap. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So what Lenore and I are going to do is we're going to stay at the station for another 15 minutes after the program to take your calls. We'll take your name and number. And when we're able to get a contact number of how you can get this book, because the old contact number was Peely and now she's passed away, uh, we will get back to you and tell you how you can get this book. And it's a wonderful, I've read it three times. I mean, it's so inspiring and the drawings are so magnificent. Uh, the number, the on the air number is 848-4425. I'll repeat it. Area code 510-444-4825. And in closing, we're going to play one of Peely's favorite musicians, Sidney Bechet.
She's ugly. Okay, not ugly. That's a bit harsh. Okay, um, she's very unattractive, but I love her. My dependable, always there, 1989 Nissan Sentra. Now working at KPFA means it might be a while before I can buy a new used car. But when the time comes, I know what I'll do. I'll donate my old car to KPFA. It's a great way of supporting the station, and you can do the same. It doesn't matter if your old vehicle looks like it's been on 100 miles of bad road. Donate it to KPFA and get a break on next year's taxes. Visit kpfa.org or call one. Eight six 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 two eight two two seven seven for more information. Donating your old car, truck, motorcycle, boat means supporting independent radio. 